Our scripture this morning is Luke chapter 2. This is the scene in the tradition that's called the presentation. And the time came for the purification to the law of Moses, that is Mary and Joseph, brought up to Jerusalem to present him, that is Jesus, to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb um, shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought, the, <clears throat> brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phenel and the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Lord, may you teach us through the story of Simeon and Anna today what it means to wait for your consolation. I pray, especially this morning, that in our worship and time of prayer and our hearing of your word, that you would console us and you would comfort us, just like you did Simeon 2,000 years ago. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've always, been, um, I've always been intrigued by this description of Simeon. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. What's intrigued me is that phrase, the waiting for the consolation of Israel. It's as if waiting for consolation is part of, a, it's like a character trait of Simeon part of his identity as a person. Now, we know very little about Simeon except that verse I just read you. Um, he is not a known figure. He doesn't have a family lineage that is spoken of here, um, which points to the fact that he was not a person of any particular status in Israel. Nobody really knew who he was. He wasn't a priest, a Levite. He wasn't a Pharisee. He was just an ordinary, uh, ordinary layperson, as we would say, 
one of the many thousands of faithful citizens of Jerusalem that regularly visited the temple to worship the Lord. The other thing that we learn about Simeon is that he is elderly. Now, Luke doesn't tell this us this directly, but that is the assumption here. He is elderly. Um, that's an important part of the story. And Luke says, and it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And when the, the Spirit finally directs him to Simeon and to Mary and Joseph, or I'm sorry, when the Spirit finally directs Simeon to Mary and Joseph um, and Jesus, he takes the, 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 the child in his hands and says, now, Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. There's a sense that you get in reading this story that Simeon uh, has been waiting to die, <laughs> but he has, uh, he's close to death, but God has promised that he will not die before he sees the Christ child. And now that he has him in his hand, there's a sense of, aha, I can finally die. I can die in peace. So we continue this morning in this series that we've been reflecting on uh, different figures from the story of Luke's gospel, uh, infancy stories, about what does it mean for us to await the coming of Christ? What does it mean for us to receive him now, today? And so the first week we explored through Zechariah, the idea of having a prophetic imagination. Through the story of Mary and the Annunciation, we looked at what it means to surrender. Last week, through the story of Elizabeth and Mary, we looked at the idea of joyful celebration. Today, from Simeon, we learn the meaning of consolation. Awaiting the coming of Christ into the world is to experience consolation in life and in death. During the Advent season, we typically think about life, right? New life, birth of Jesus, but also of John the Baptist. But in this story, the presentation, we're learning what it means, uh, where, where actually the focus is bringing us back towards this theme of death. How do we die in peace? And the figures of Simeon and Anna are, are, are important. There are two witnesses, a male and a female, both elderly and righteous and devout, bearing witness to Christ. Both of them see him, and both are, in a sense, released from this life. Consolation is what we need to die in peace, but it's also what we need to live in peace. And so what does this consolation involve? Now, the idea of consolation... Um, as a, it's a metaphor for salvation, and it really comes primarily from the book of Isaiah, the prophet. It is a, a repeated theme in the book. It was the call to worship this morning in our first hymn, right? Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. Comfort is consolation. Salvation as comfort, it, and I, I, I want you to see that salvation as comfort has this emotional dimension to it, right? God speaks tenderly. God removes shame and guilt. Um, and these words from Isaiah are really spoken in the context of exile, um, to comfort Israel. The land of Israel has been ravaged by war. The people have lost everything, and much of the population has been removed and placed in a foreign land. You know, the scenes that we see today in the news of devastated uh, 
cities in the Ukraine and countrysides and the war and all the stories really evoke very much the experience of the Israelites who were under assault by Syrians and Babylonians. You can imagine the emotional uh, trauma and the temptation to be despairing of, of life in the light of everything that has been lost. And throughout, Isaiah has these words of comfort from God, this promise. Isaiah 51, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and a voice of, a voice of song. God's comfort is renewal and restoration of the land and the earth, but it is also a kind of emotional restoration of the joy and the peace um, and the love that was present. Finally, there's one last depiction. God depicts himself as a mother comforting a child. This is from Isaiah 66. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees, as one, of his mother, <clears throat> as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like the grass. So God describes himself as like a mother comforting a child. So when Luke records this little detail about Simeon, that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, this is what he was waiting for. And when Simeon, in his blessing and his song, he experiences and bears witness to this comfort, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people of Israel. The long-awaited uh, promises and comforts that Isaiah spoke of are now realized as he holds this child in his hands. Luke's telling of the story of Christmas is like emotional light in the midst of a world of dark emotion. When I read the story and you step back, there's just so much emotion language, emotional light. Jesus is the joy of all creation, right? And when he comes onto the scene, everybody just responds to him with rejoicing and gratitude and thanks and love and peace and wonder, right? He is emotional light in the darkness of the world. And that emotional light, if you will, in the Gospel of Luke largely keeps the shadows uh, to the side of the room. Uh, this, however, when you look at the Gospel of Matthew, and the way that Matthew tells the story is very different than the way Luke tells the story. Matthew's uh, story of the infancy narrative is much, much darker and even, you could say, bleak. It's kind of like the indie film version of Christmas. That's how I think of Matthew's gospel. Um, the way the story starts out is with a potential divorce. Mary's pregnant. Joseph doesn't know what's going on. He just draws a logical conclusion. My wife's been unfaithful, and so I'm going to quietly divorce her. And an angel intervenes. Right? So that's how the story starts out. Then you have these magi. And the magi are foreigners. They're Gentiles from the east. They come to Jerusalem, and they consult with the temple, and the priests, the prophets, or 
the, the Pharisees rather, and they said, we, we had a revelation and that the, the king of the Jews is to be born. Where is he supposed to be born? And all of the religious leaders gather together and say, well, the scriptures say he should be born in Bethlehem. You should go try there. But what's remarkable is that nobody goes with him. None of the, you know, you would think that the, the religious leaders the longing for the coming of the Messiah, they would go, but they don't go. But Herod is listening, and Herod is nervous. Actually, Herod is worried about another king. And so he tries to find a way to find out where this child is so he can have him killed. But of course, God intervenes, warns Mary and Joseph, and they flee. They flee to Egypt. They go into exile. And Herod is so enraged that he has not been able to find and kill this child that he uh, has this, this decree of vengeance in which he orders all of the infant children, all the infant boys under the age of two to be slaughtered. And Matthew quotes from the book of Jeremiah, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. There's a reason we prefer Luke's uh, Christmas story to Matthew's, right? It's very hard. Um, it's very hard for us to sort of hold these in tension. And yet, these are not contradictory stories. In fact, you have to read them together. And Luke himself is not um, unfamiliar with the dark side of Christmas. And his version of the Christmas story is not a sanitized version. Um, if you know where to look, you can see the undercurrents everywhere, and it's primarily by what's not said in Luke. But in the presentation story, which we have today, you, the story in the temple with Simeon, we start to see the shadows uh, starting to emerge uh, from the corners. And in something of an aside comment that Simeon makes to Mary, we, we begin to get a sense of things that are to come. He says, Behold this child... This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And the sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Now, this is a fairly cryptic statement. Well, what is Simeon saying? He seems to be trying to prepare Mary to warn, to warn her of what is to come, that this child will be like a sword that divides Israel. Although you have had many come to you that rejoice and give thanks and praise for this child, many will not. Many will oppose him. Many will reject him. Many will wish for him to be dead. And here you see already the shadow of the cross beginning to, to cast its, its uh, long backward shadow into this joy-filled scene. There is a lot of sentimentality during the Christmas season. And I'm speaking as a general, you know, the way our culture celebrates Christmas. Right, Christmas, it's a time of positivity, a time of goodwill, a time for us to be nice to one another and thoughtful. And you just think about all of the Christmas movies, especially the newer ones. Um, the older ones preserve some of the dark sides of Christmas, I think. But the newer ones almost always are, at the end, happy endings, feel-good stories, um, positive and comforting thoughts. 
this is what I think of as the Christmas industrial complex of positivity and sentimentality. I mean, that's, that's what we have, right? I mean, it sells things, right? However, many people, for many people, Christmas is emotionally speaking one of the hardest times of year. It's one of the toughest times of year. I've heard this from many people. I think it's hard precisely because all the forced positivity and good cheer um, makes it so difficult. It feels somewhat shallow and out of touch with life as it is, right? When your life is falling apart, it's hard to put on a Santa hat. When people close to you are suffering or have died or dying, it's hard to feel the holiday cheer. When you're alone, when your marriage is on the rocks, um, when your kids no longer talk to you, when it takes all the emotional energy you can muster just to get out of the house and be around other people, it's hard to feel the spirit of Christmas. And this brings us to a really important truth that this story teaches us, which is that sentimentality is not consolation. Sentimentality is not consolation. True consolation is not a matter of positive thinking or uh, sort of mustering up the right emotions or feelings or putting on your happy face. Consolation is not ignoring the darkness. It is not forced joy or peace or hope. And I think there's a lot of disconnect in our celebrations of Christmas because we don't know how to connect the genuine and real joy of Jesus and the peace and the love with the darkness of our lives and of this world. So the opposite of consolation is desolation. The opposite of consolation is desolation. Desolation is the experience of an inner emptiness, a feeling of being stripped bare and lifeless. It's, it's what the women in Bethlehem felt that the prophet Jeremiah predicted, Rachel weeping for her children, slaughtered, refusing to be comforted. Desolation is a description of our emotional state and inner life when we have experienced and gone through various kinds of suffering and trauma in life that feel us just, we feel desolate. And when this desolation persists, it becomes a kind of a hardness emotionally that becomes where we become somewhat inconsolable, unable to feel certain things emotionally, such as joy or peace or love. The soil of our heart becomes like the ground outside now, which is just getting harder and harder. Nothing will grow in. Ignatius of Loyola, in his uh, book, The Spiritual Exercises, has a lot to say about um, desolation. And Ignatius talks about desolation as our soul in the midst of darkness. The soul in darkness sort of moving away from God or having extreme difficulty being able to connect with God emotionally. And I think one of the marks that you're in a place of desolation in life is that you, you, you just struggle with all that's in you to, to feel the sort of normal emotions of joy or, or love or gratitude. Everything seems really difficult. And when we're in a place of desolation, faith is difficult, and a lack of faith um, that leaves us without hope and, and peace and love, it's a kind of emotional rupture, if you will, and disconnection from God. And I think at various times in our life, all of us here are tempted by desolation or 
or in places of desolation, death of a loved one, the end of a relationship, postpartum, a career failure, a missed opportunity, deep loneliness, persistent sorrow. These, in different ways, can trigger in us um, this desolation. <clears throat> in my own life, I've gone through, as I think back on my life of 47 years, <laughs> uh, three great seasons of desolation. And each uh, of these seasons has lasted um, up to two years, at least. And the most recent one, many of you are familiar with, <laughs> was the event surrounding the breakdown of my relationship with our associate pastor, Phil, who was uh, a dear friend for 10 years. But not only that relationship, but a dozen or so other relationships um, that sort of were broken because of all of the events there. And these are things that I, every single day I'm reminded of in terms of losses. During this time, this, this period, I was overcome with a very profound sense of desolation um, that really made it felt impossible to function as a pastor. The other times in my life when I had gone through these seasons of desolation, I was single or I was married and we didn't have children. I was largely just responsible for myself as a grad student or working. But now, you know, husband and father and a pastor of a church that needed to be shepherd in the middle of a pandemic. And so one of the things I did, I did many things. One of the things I did out of desperation was I started seeing a Christian counselor to help me work through my desolation. And I remember one of the first, the most important things he said to me early on in our conversations. And it had to do with spiritual consolation. He didn't use this language. But he said that when you are feeling overwhelmed by desolation, again, he didn't use these words, but this is feeling overwhelmed, you need to learn, you need to connect. You need to connect, reconnect. You need to connect with four things. You need to connect with what is true in the situation. You need to connect with yourself. You need to connect with healthy um, others in your life. And most importantly, you need to connect with God. Those four connections, a connection with what is true, a connection with, with myself, a connection with others, and a connection with God. And this became uh, a framework for me to begin a two-year-long process of sort of, you know, daily just confronting my desolation, if you will. Again, Ignatius of Loyola is helpful for understanding uh, consolation. He speaks a great deal of consolation. And consolation, as Ignatius observes um, in this interior way, is consolation is deep connection, a connectedness to God that fills our hearts with peace and love and joy and hope. Spiritual consolation is, and I'm quoting uh, Ignatius, he says, it's an interior motion within the soul that causes it to be inflamed with love by God. So every increase of hope and love and peace and faith and joy is what Ignatius means by spiritual consolation. But he's really clear that the increase of these things in their life uh, needs to be a result not of earthly realities such as 
oh, the, the circumstances of my life changed and I can now, you know, not be so sad, or a kind of a mood swing. No, these are changes uh, that are in response to the reality of God. Again, consolation is not uh, sentimentality. Oscar Wilde, the playwright and, and writer, uh, once described sentimentality as having an emotion that you didn't earn. Sentimentality is having an emotion you didn't earn, you didn't pay for. Um, it's not a genuine and an abiding sort of state of affairs. It's sort of emotion that passes and then you're unchanged and the situation goes back to itself. True sentimentality or true consolation is not sentimentality. It is the soul attaching itself to heavenly things. And this doesn't happen easily or quickly. It only comes about when we learn to connect in our inner self to the truth and reality of who God is. And that's what I think Simeon experiences when he faces, um, in the face of death, and he holds this child in his hand and he says, I can now die in peace. Now, some of you here I know are sitting in the midst of desolation or sitting in the darkness, and you yearn for this spiritual consolation, and yet it seems to be just out of reach. <laughs> how do you do this? How do you, how do you confront the desolation? How do you experience spiritual consolation? I don't really have uh, how to do this, do that, step-by-step um, -step process for you, um, it is a process, and sometimes a year, years-long process. It is a deeply interior, interior spiritual journey that is unique to your own soul and the Lord, and I think it looks different in all of our lives. And yet, I do think there are some truths, some, some guiding truths to keep in mind when we're um, moving and seeking the spiritual consolation of the Lord. And I think, again, Simeon shows us the way. And so I just want to give you three things in close that Simeon does that we ought to um, take to heart. The first thing that Simeon does is, in his waiting for the consolation of Israel, is he does not forsake the ordinary means of grace. He doesn't forsake the ordinary means of grace. Now, means of grace, what do I mean? In, in our context, that's just going, coming to church and worshiping, participating in the sacraments, hearing the word preached, praying, being with God's people in community. Simeon doesn't do this. He is a regular, faithful presence in the temple, um, being with God's people. And you see this the same with, with Mary and Joseph, right? They've got the Christ child. This, this, I mean, Jesus, they say, I, I, I will, you know, destroy the temple and rebuild it. Like, he will replace the temple. And yet Joseph and Mary here are coming to observe all that was commanded of them in the law of Moses. They're having Jesus circumcised. They're having him dedicated and purified. They're just... They're just doing what the law and what, what good Jews for, for hundreds and thousands of years have done again and again and again. And I think this is so important because that's one of the things you see as you read the Gospel of Luke is you just, you just get this picture of Jesus is coming into a world in which people are longing and waiting, but they're just living ordinary lives, praying, coming to the temple, making sacrifices, showing up the waiting, this helps them wait. They keep on hoping, keep on obeying, keep on showing up, 
keep on being devout. I think one of the great temptations in seasons of desolation is to push away. To push away from the means of grace. You're like, they don't seem to be working. I'm not feeling it. Or you push away from the community. I need to retreat. I need to deal with this desolation on my own. But this is precisely the wrong instinct. Do not listen. <laughs> Actually, uh, one of the things that Ignatius says when we're in a place of, of desolation, he says, do not make any life-changing decisions. When you're in a place of desolation, you cannot make life-changing changes to your life. I thought that was very important. <laughs> My counselor said as much to me. When we're in a place of desolation, I think our temptation is to move away, to push people away. But what this does, especially when you isolate yourself, is you basically uh, intensify the desolation. So Simeon is faithful. He just keeps showing up. He keeps being faithful day in, day out, week in, week out, year after year. He shows up. He prays. He hopes. He waits. So that's the first thing, not forsaking the means of grace. But the second one is is discerning the work of the Spirit, discerning the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, that's the second thing you see here, is that the consolation that Simeon receives is, is part of a work of the Holy Spirit in his life. Um, the true spirit of Christmas is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> that's the true spirit of Christmas. It's not some kind of, you know, uh, trumped-up emotional feeling you have. The true spirit of Christmas is the Holy Spirit. And in the Gospel of Luke, you have this intense concentration of references to the Spirit. There's more references to the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Luke in these first two chapters than anywhere else in the whole Gospel. Um, and you see this with, with Simeon. There's three different references. First, we hear that Simeon was a man upon whom the Spirit, who had the Spirit, right? He was like a spirit for a person. The second one is that the Spirit uh, revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he saw the Christ child. And then the third, the Spirit, when Simeon is in the temple, the Spirit directs Simeon amongst the crowds of people to find Mary and Joseph and Jesus. The Spirit is at work. This work of consolation is a work of the Holy Spirit in the very depths of our life. It's the work of consolation. Again, I shared a therapeutic, you know, a, a seeing a counselor and that sort of inner work, which was really important. But it's not just me trying to connect the dots. <laughs> it's not just you connecting the dots inside, trying to manage these things. It, this is a deep work of the Spirit in you. It's a therapeutic work of God in you. When you take the truth of who God is and what he has done, and you apply it, as David says, to the inward depths, as he says in Psalm 51, to the inward being you desire truth. The Spirit is poured out upon us. We are within the Spirit. We live and move and have our being in the Spirit of God. And so the way you know that the Spirit is at work in your life in consolation is that He's always directing you to Jesus. The Spirit will never direct you away from Jesus. And not, He will direct you to Jesus in the depths. <laughs> He will bring you into a deeper and deeper and fuller experience where Jesus is part of your life. So, Simeon doesn't forsake the means of grace. He, he is a man of the Spirit. And finally, the last thing we see that he does is the most, the, the thing that you can just kind of read right by and not see, but arguably the most important thing he does. He takes the child 
in his hands. This is like when he sees this Christ child, I don't know if he said, can I hold your child? Or whether he just went up to Mary and he grabbed the child and then blessed, but he holds the child. He took him in his arms. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, um, Simeon is, um, there's a lot of icons of Simeon. He's called um, as the Theodox, the God receiver. Mary is called the Theotokos, the God bearer. And so um, Simeon is the God receiver. And you have these icons of him, this man holding, you know, the baby Jesus. You're like, what is that? That's Simeon. He's the God taker. He's the God receiver. He holds God in his arms. He holds God in his arms. He cradles God. That's an incredible thought. It's incredible. He holds salvation itself in his hands. This is consolation, friends. This is why, I mean, he's holding this child. He's like, I can die in peace. Emmanuel, God with us. If you think about that word comfort, think about the times in which you have been most deeply comforted in your life in the midst of affliction or suffering. In almost every case, it's going to be that somebody was in your presence. Not with the right words necessarily, but they were present. You weren't alone. To take him into our life, as Simeon did, is is have Emmanuel, God, with us. And we can do what Simeon did, and we can say what he said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This past fall, a man named Mike Murphy died and untimely death of cancer. I didn't know Mike. I heard a lot about Mike. Uh, some of you knew Mike. Some of you are actually quite close with Mike here. And like Simeon, by all accounts, uh, Mike was a righteous and devout, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And among the many ministries that Mike uh, helped start in the Milwaukee area in Wisconsin, one that has had a lasting impact is a prison ministry where he started uh, a seminary in the Wisconsin prison system in which prisoners uh, would get seminary degrees and then be able to minister throughout different uh, prisons in the, in the system. And uh, there was a very large funeral for Mike at the Brookfield Church where he was a member, uh, but his wife Elizabeth reached out to me asking whether we would be willing to host another event here because there's a lot of men that lived in the city of Milwaukee uh, that couldn't get out and she wanted to have an opportunity for, for people to come, especially these men who were impacted from Mike, just to share what he meant and stories about Mike. And so we did that. And I was here for that. And it was, it was a beautiful, beautiful time of sharing and just hearing about how this man had impacted um, so many lives. And uh, as, um, as I thought about um, Simeon and... The consolation he received, I was reminded of something that somebody had shared with me of Mike's last words, and um, his wife Elizabeth actually shared this on the Caring Bridge page, and I think it's a beautiful expression of consolation. So I'll try to read this without being weepy, but I just want to share uh, as these final words. This is what Elizabeth writes. She said, Mike 
was asked once, how do you know Jesus loves you? And his answer was simple. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. <clears throat> he was fond of saying, if you, if you believe Jesus loves you, it changes everything. That is how he lived his life as a man who knew Jesus loved him. His last words spoken in a clear and calm voice were, wow, wow, wow. It's all true, all of it. All the love, incredible. Wow, wow, wow. It's all true, all of it. All the love, incredible. We believe, this is Elizabeth, we believe he saw what awaited him in heaven, a love like no other, and he was peaceful and relaxed until he took his final breath. These are no words to just, these are no words to describe how deeply loved he was and how deeply missed he will be, but his story continues in eternity, and so does ours until we see him again. The love, it's true. Wow, 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 it's true, the love. I think that's what Simeon experienced, and we can all experience that in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We give you thanks for the witness of your saints, those who have gone ahead of us, those who have, in their own lives, experienced your consolation. I pray for any today, here, in places of desolation, in places struggling to connect with um, genuine abiding joy and peace and love. I pray, Lord, that you would comfort them with, the, with your presence, the secure knowledge that we have that in Jesus we are loved, so loved, and that we could receive that at the very depths of our being. Lord, we give you thanks for your word and for this season. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.